I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is episode 18. So with episode 12, we began our podcast series looking at science in modern America. The first several episodes focused on science in America just before what we might call modern America, as well as centering science in the laboratory. And we explored a specific example studying Drosophila. In episode 15 of the podcast, titled The Origins of Science as an Engine for Prosperity, we looked at Vannevar Bush's report to the president, titled Science, the Endless Frontier. Written in 1945, this report framed scientific progress as being essential for the economic health of the United States and the benefit to all the citizenry. The report also proposed the creation of what today is the National Science Foundation to ensure government funding of basic research to provide an engine for innovation in science and technology progress. Vannevar Bush's report is seen as the start of the era of federal funding for post-war scientific research and development, and we saw an example in episode 16 regarding quantum engineering. So to close out our deep dive podcast series on science in modern America, I thought we would move out of the laboratory and discuss the bigger picture regarding science funding and science policy. We'll look at an example of what government funding of science looks like, and then compare that to the arguments Vannevar Bush made in his report, Science the Endless Frontier. As for a specific science topic for discussion, I thought it would be interesting to look at stem cell research. And so to help ground our discussions, we'll dive into the book, People's Science, Bodies and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier by Ruha Benjamin. Okay, let's dive in. Ruha Benjamin is a professor of African American Studies at Princeton University and is the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. Benjamin earned her PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley. And she writes and speaks about the relationship between innovation and inequity, knowledge and power, race and citizenship, and health and justice. The book we're diving into today, People's Science, Bodies and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier, was her first book and was published in 2013. But before I get to that, I do want to also mention her second book, Race After Technology. Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, which was published in 2019 and discusses how artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms can reinforce and deepen the social inequities in society, whether the developers of those algorithms or the users of those systems intend those results or not. Now, I've read that second book, and perhaps we can come back to it in a future podcast episode. But for today, let's focus on Benjamin's first book. Again, that's People's Science, Bodies, and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier. Overall, this book is the result of her ethnographic work 
investigating the passage of Proposition 71, the California Stem Cell Research and Cures Initiative. The book shows the tension between the call for scientific progress and innovation in Vannevar Bush's 1945 report with who participates in the direction of that science and who benefits from those scientific results. Of course, if you follow politics, you know that stem cell research can be a controversial political topic. But the book does a great job actually parsing the nuances and conflicts across race, disability, class, and gender as far as who participates in and benefits from stem cell research. So to begin, let's review briefly what we mean by stem cell research. Stem cells are certain cells in our bodies that can divide and multiply to create new, different kinds of cells used in our skin, organs, blood, and bone. You can think of stem cells as building blocks for our body. There are three main types of stem cells. Embryonic stem cells are the first cells that are formed after the sperm fertilizes an egg. These are important because embryonic stem cells can produce all the other kinds of cells in our body muscles, bones, organs. This is why embryonic stem cells are valued in science, because they can be manipulated in the lab to multiply over and over to create any other cell type. Thus, they have great potential for treating diseases and injuries. For example, they could be used to give missing insulin-making cells for people with diabetes or replace lost brain cells due to Parkinson's disease. The problem with these stem cells, is that to collect them, scientists must harvest them from three to five-day-old embryos from women who have gone through in vitro fertilization. And so some people object to the use of embryonic stem cells because those people might be against abortion or have other religious or political reasons. The second type of stem cell is known as the adult stem cell. These are mature stem cells that help repair and replenish some of the types of cells in our body. For example, hematopoietic stem cells in our bone marrow produce blood and immune cells. Thus, adult stem cells, unlike embryonic stem cells, can become only certain types of cells. They are limited in how often they can divide, and they can't repair serious injuries or replace cells lost to disease. On the other hand, they are easier to collect and use since everybody has these types of cells. Finally, the third type of stem cell is called the induced pluripotent stem cell. These are adult stem cells that are scientifically manipulated in a lab to look and act like embryonic stem cells. This is a newer area of research, but the idea is that you can take skin or blood cells and essentially reprogram them to behave like embryonic stem cells, to then produce any other type of cell. Stem cell research, therefore, is the science of investigating the use of stem cells to help cure or repair diseases and injuries in, ideally, humans. While the potential benefits of stem cell therapy are extraordinary, its controversial nature meant that scientists have not always been free to pursue the line of basic and applied research suggested by Vannevar Bush's report. For example, Benjamin says that in 2001, then-President George W. Bush announced 
that National Institutes of Health grants could be used for research only on existing stem cell lines, numbering in the dozens, and that research producing new stem cell lines after that date would be ineligible for federal support and would be illegal if done with federal dollars. Now, this political intervention into the domain of science by the president understandably caused an uproar. The state of California decided to take matters into its own hands by proposing Proposition 71, the California Stem Cell Research and Cures Act. If the voters would approve this proposition, Proposition 71 would provide $3 billion from the state for stem cell research and modify the state's constitution to guarantee scientists the right to pursue stem cell research with special priority for embryonic stem cell research in defiance of the federal mandate against it. The California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, sometimes abbreviated with the acronym CIRM, would be created to administer the grants. And the Independent Citizens Oversight Committee, or ICOC, would be created to oversee the grants process. Now, this is a retrospective look we're taking here. Proposition 71 did pass in 2004. But the book highlights the arguments by various constituencies either supporting the proposition or siding against it in the run-up to the vote, with groups forming along racial, socioeconomic, gender, disability, and other lines of prejudice. What was interesting was that while the Vannevar Bush report promoted the idea that any new science would be beneficial to society and thus was worth pursuing a view of science that many people hold today as being true. Benjamin's research uncovered that this was not necessarily the case. For example, I think most people would support the pursuit of stem cell research as a possible cure for deafness. If we can cure deafness, then this new science has obvious benefits. Therefore, that line of research is worth pursuing. However, from the point of view of deaf people, they not all of them actually feel that they need curing. In fact, one of the factions against Proposition 71 were deaf people who viewed such cures as a form of eugenics. Now, this example is part of the ongoing tension today between able-bodied people who view themselves as normal and who also, therefore, view anyone not normal as being defective and in need of curing or in need of saving. Benjamin writes, Disability activists tend to underemphasize any inherent burden or pain associated with their physical condition, pointing instead to social exclusion, cultural stigma, or lack of access to existing quality of life and treatment options as the primary problems to be overcome. By contrast, Stem cell advocates tend to overemphasize the inherent biological basis of a condition, highlighting the need for greater economic investment and political support for research to speed the discovery of novel treatments and cures. These competing approaches are routinely distinguished as the social model versus the medical model of disability and disease, respectively. Thus, scientists taking the medical model viewed patients as being defective while many with the actual disabilities, instead of wanting to be cured, instead, with the social model, 
wanted to be viewed with respect and wanted to have the quality of life that is automatically afforded to able-bodied people. Another interesting discrepancy between what we were sold in the Vannevar Bush report versus what actually happens in real life is the model for how we benefit from the results of scientific research. Vannevar Bush touted the trickle-down model of science. Basic science should be funded to allow scientists to pursue the research that they want to do. And the results from that research would eventually, hopefully, get turned into applied science, which would then benefit you and me. But in reality, those benefits to society from science are not equally distributed. For example, keep in mind that the U.S. is the only developed country in the world without universal health care. And there are millions of people in the U.S. without health insurance. Moreover, the book reports that an analysis of national health statistics data found that between 1991 and 2000, almost 900,000 African-American deaths could have been prevented if blacks had received the same health care as whites. The study estimates that technological improvements in medicine, including better drugs, devices, and procedures, averted only 176,633 deaths during the same time period. Thus, some rightly question the immense costs involved in funding these sorts of new, risky science research programs, especially when the social benefits are so lopsided based on race and socioeconomic status, for example. Also, this example reveals the culture in the U.S. of always pushing for innovation at the expense of just maintaining the systems you already have, last year's innovations. Again, Proposition 71 passed, but I see the sorts of nuances Benjamin's research uncovered as the value in her book. We see how the model of science as an endless frontier for the benefit of all that Vannevar Bush painted does not really hold in real life. Proposition 71 was about the right for scientists to pursue stem cell research in California, which is in a country where our citizens do not even have the right to basic health care. I think Benjamin's book is definitely worth your attention because it helps you understand the different forces that can both align for and against a particular science initiative. Also, since those forces may not be who or what you expect, Benjamin's book helps clarify your vision when considering these sorts of matters. But before we conclude for the day, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at what were the results of all that stem cell research that Proposition 71's $3 billion funded. After all, Proposition 71 was passed based in part on its lofty promises. One, nearly half of all the families in California could benefit from stem cell treatments that Proposition 71 would help create. Two, one study it commissioned found that new, life-changing therapies could emerge in just a few years. And three, Proposition 71 would pay off financially for the state, creating thousands of jobs and potentially returning the state's investment more than seven times over. However, according to an investigative report conducted 14 years after Proposition 71 was passed, the study found the results are mixed. Yes, California is now a global leader in what is now called regenerative medicine. 
and there are massive new buildings on several university campuses specifically designated for stem cell research. As another benefit, a news article about the results of the investigation reported that at UCLA, doctors are using stem cells to cure a rare immune deficiency disease that kills children. And scientists receiving funding from the proposition have published some 330 research papers. Great. However, the article also says that not a single federally proved therapy has resulted. The predicted financial windfall has also not materialized. The bulk of the grants have gone to basic research, training programs, and building new labs, not to clinical trials, testing the kinds of potential cures and therapies the billions of dollars were supposed to deliver. Also, though the project funded about 50 clinical trials, only four have been completed, and one of those was an observational study. No new therapy was being tested. And for the three that were successfully completed, treatments are still years away from reaching the market. Now, it's not clear to me how you quantify and weigh the costs, the time, and the effort spent, and the benefits from these types of research programs, especially when the benefits in the U.S. are so selectively distributed and while our basic needs are being ignored. But Benjamin's book is great for helping us to think about the issues involved. So here's a key question. Is the price for something like stem cell research too much? Well, when Proposition 71's $3 billion started to run out a few years ago, Robert Klein, who was the lead architect of the proposition and chair of the oversight committee that governed the distribution of those grants, he rephrased that question in the following way. Robert asked, do you want your son to die? Are you going to wait? Is that the price you are prepared to pay? Evidently, when that question was posed that way to the Californians, the price was not too much. Because last year, in 2020, California approved Proposition 14, which awarded $5.5 billion more to the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine for continuing their stem cell research mission. And so now we have a lot of nuance to think about, but let's wrap up episode 18. Thank you for listening, and please head over to patreon.com slash Kendall Giles to our Patreon page to sign up. I really would appreciate your support. In addition to supporting the show, on Patreon you can sign up to get show transcripts, including links to the articles and books discussed, along with other writings and benefits. In any case, again, thank you for listening, and until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream. Music